welcome once again to the Scotland's Choice podcast. Join us on the journey as we discuss the choices for the Scottish public as we prepare for the referendum. We'll talk about what we do differently to Westminster already with the limited powers we do have and what we could and would do differently with the full powers of independence. Why? Well, we want everyone to be informed, involved and hopefully inspired to look at the possibilities for Scotland because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host Drew Hendry and I'm also an MP at Westminster. My guest on this episode is Neil Gray. Neil was MP for Airdrie and Shots from 2015 to 2021 before standing down to become successfully elected to the Scottish Parliamentary constituency of the same name, this time as an MSP. Born in Orkney, he graduated with a degree in politics and journalism. He's an avid Aberdeen fan and has represented Scotland in athletics at 400 metres distance. Although notably, his first job after the recent election was to run home with the milk at the request of his wife Carly and his children. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much, Drew. It's great to be along and be able to have a chat with an old friend. It's good to see you too. The the Social Justice Commission report is described as a route map for a fair and independent Scotland and that's what we're going to be talking about on this uh, podcast. The the destination, it says, is being a well-being society that values and cares for everyone who lives here, whether they're born here or not. And the themes, it says, are democratic renewal, changing the way we make decisions values rooted in human rights and equality and prioritising well-being through transformative policies that put the well-being of people first. Why is that important? It's critical to the functioning of a good society and making sure that we're taking decisions that are properly supporting and securing our people, but also entrusting them uh, with the security to be able to go and live their lives to the fullest, to be able to be creative contributors to society, but involving them in the decision-making process far better as well, because then we make better policy that has greater buy-in from uh, citizens. It it benefits from uh, uh, people with lived experience feeding into that and using their agency to be able to uh, ensure that we have really uh, strong policy that makes a big difference for people uh, across Scotland. And and that's important because there's a lot been happening to social security on a UK basis, specifically over the past 10 years. What are your thoughts on what's been happening in that, uh, that area? Well, Social Security has been used as a cash cow for the cuts in the austerity agenda that we've seen from the UK government. The DWP has been stripped back. It has been cut to ribbons. And, you know, universal credit itself, you know, when it was first introduced, the SNP gave a cautious welcome to it because it made sense to bring together a complex system um, that was difficult to navigate, bring a multitude of benefits into one payment, uh, one point of contact for people to be able to go if they had an issue or if they were looking to claim. Uh, But the way that George Osborne in particular from that 2015 budget uh, really stripped back, cut back any uh, support element that was there in universal credit, it's made it unrecognisable from what it was first instituted as um, and that has driven poverty levels across the UK. The food bank use that we're seeing uh, in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK, the Trussell Trust tell us 
that that is largely driven by the policies instilled in universal credit. And there are ways of changing it. There are ways of sorting out. There are structural issues there, such as the five-week wait that could be sorted out. But there are also political uh, decisions around the funding of social of, of universal credit that could be sorted out as well, such as uh, the work allowances that currently uh, mean that uh, people on universal credit are effectively the highest taxed um, workers um, um, in the UK. So what we've seen in social security in the UK is a decimation of that safety net. The safety net has holes enough, big enough that so many people have fallen through leading into the pandemic, but also during the pandemic, where we've seen a massive increase in people needing uh, social security, needing to access universal credit, but finding the system wholly unsuitable uh, for their needs and to be able to stop them from falling into poverty. Uh, and so that uh, highlights, hopefully, to everybody the need for a proper investment in Social Security to make sure that it's there as a social protection, uh, it's there as a, to ensure that we don't fall into poverty, and that it is there for everybody, you know, not just, uh, you know, the... the a horrible uh, view of the likes of the Daily Mail and others and the right-wing press that see it as just being there for their so-called work shy and, and, and uh, the undeserving poor. It's there for everybody, for all of us. And the pandemic has shown us um, that a social security is needed at times where we least expect it, but it should be there to make sure that we don't fall into poverty. Well, you welcomed the, uh, you, you mentioned that it was welcomed at the beginning in terms of streamlining the process for people. But of course, there have been major issues with it since minute one. It was, you probably remember, it was introduced in, uh, in Inverness as a pilot area. And we could see here the problems starting with it right away, putting people into rent arrears and so forth. And, and the big issue is that, uh, you know, in terms of the UK government, they just never listened, even though it was a pilot. They never listened to the things that were uh, happening to people. People, they, they, they never re recognised the problems or tried to do anything about it, did they? Yeah, I mean, your work, first of all, as leader of Highland Council and then uh, going on as uh, the MP um, um, for your area, you know, should have shown the, you know, the UK government from early doors that there were, pro there were problems that needed to be ironed out. And, you know, the, the whole approach to them um, rolling out universal credit was supposed to be um, test and learn. Uh, but they've tested, they've used people as guinea pigs, but they've never learned and they've never adopted strategies and uh, proposals and listened to the feedback that communities who were the, you know, the first uh, to see the rollout, such as yours in Inverness, uh, to ensure that the, the learning process was right. But then, of course, the, there was never really a, a, a political buy-in from the UK government, particularly the Treasury, to ensure that this was going to work. I think, to be fair, um, and you won't often hear me say this, I think Ian Duncan Smith did want to try to get this right. He, he did want a proper test and learn approach, but he felt, I think, completely undermined by the Treasury that was just looking to asset strip universal credit um, from day dot and saw it as an opportunity uh, to plug holes in other areas and to uh, finance the austerity agenda. Um, and uh, you've seen that firsthand, the work that you've done um, in the Commons highlighting this uh, from day dot has been superb. And if only they'd listened to you uh, from early on, then we wouldn't be in the problems that we are now.
It, it, it was nice of you to say that, but what, what do you feel are the, the biggest issues, the, the, the greatest injustices that you've seen that have been caused through the, the kind of chaotic handling of universal credit by the UK government? It, it, it is a failure of society that we have a food bank network across the UK um, that is having to operate effectively as an arm of the social security system. That is a complete failure of the social security system that people need emergency food aid. And I tell you from volunteering at the local food banks in my area, um, the hardship and poverty that it's been experienced uh, because of a lack of support through universal credit and other social security benefits, um, it absolutely kills me when I when I see it. And obviously we all do our best to try to help people in those situations, but their poverty is so ingrained and deep rooted that it, it, it's tragic and, and it touches all aspects of their life. You know, it's their housing, it's their social security, it's their health and education, um, and also the chances for their children as well growing up in poverty. make it, it, It's really horrible and, um, and demoralizing and depressing for us to see, never mind for them to actually be living through it. it, it it's it's awful and debilitating. Um, so I'd say that is probably the worst aspect. And it could so easily be fixed. You know, you look to give credit where it is due, the Labour government uh, in the late 90s, because they invested in tax credits, although there are undoubtedly problems with the system, but the investment that they made in people you know, drove down child poverty dramatically. So it shows that poverty levels are a political choice. You can choose to invest in areas that are going to alleviate poverty or what we've seen in the last 10 years, you can choose to cut back on those areas and see a rise in, in poverty as a result. Uh, so, you know, my call has always been to the UK government where it is possible to invest, do it. Yeah. Uh, where it is possible to avoid cutting back do it, um, you know, and that goes back to the Welfare Reform and Work Act that we, we debated right at the start well, of our our term um, when we started in 2015 that cut back on ESA RAG and we've not seen any replacement for it. Well, let's talk about doing things differently. Scotland now has devolved powers over some social security. Within the limitations of what's been devolved, what are the major policy differences? So first and foremost, it's about the approach that I find most different. Um, and that's about treating people with dignity and respect. It's a human rights based approach. So when we see the new disability um, social security support benefits coming on stream later in the year that have obviously been delayed by COVID, the adult disability benefit and the child disability benefit, um, there is going to be uh, 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 expectation against face-to-face -face assessments, which we have all heard uh, firsthand from disabled people, is the most upsetting and demoralising element of uh, previous incarnations of PIP and DLA. Uh, we're also going to see um, a greater investment and in, in targeted approach to try to alleviate poverty. So the new Scottish child payment that's been introduced, um, payment started earlier in the year. It's gonna get rolled out to up to 16 year olds. And also there's a manifesto commitment for us to double it. So rather than the, the cuts process that we're seeing from the UK government, we're seeing an investment process in Scotland and also a change in approach that's gonna treat people with dignity and respect. Talking about that dignity and respect is something that's very close to my heart. I, I chair the all-party parliamentary group for terminal illness and the difference in the treatment of those dying with terminal illness is really clear. 
even with only 15% of the welfare powers devolved to Scotland, when applying for personal independence payments, which is administered in Scotland, the terminally ill won't have to prove that they'll die within six months, as the UK government still insists for universal credit, despite years of promises and thousands of people dying before they get that support. So clear differences in approach over dignity and fairness. But, but let's talk about the future and the Social Justice Commission. And tell us, why do you think this report is so important for the future? So it's about starting the debate about what type of nation we want to be, both now in terms of the devolved setting and uh, there's ideas in there, proposals uh, that could be taken forward. And I was very pleased to see quite a few of them uh, taken up in uh, the SNP manifesto, not least the further investment in the uh, Scottish child payment. So it's about starting that debate, starting that discussion. Um, but it's also setting a blueprint for how we take decisions, how we make sure that the decisions we take uh, pass the test of uh, getting us to the point of being a well-being economy, a good society that has the economy working for its people rather than the people working for the economy. That That, that is a fundamental shift in, to, in terms of where we uh, have come from. Um, and there are ideas in there. I mean, I've been... We've all been open and honest in saying this is not deliberately not a costed manifesto because this is a set well, of that, ideas that's in, around. That's interesting. So, so would all of these policies definitely be implemented in an independent Scotland? No, because no, it's it's going to be up to um, the independent governments of an independent Scotland to take decisions. But what we're saying, and as in when resources allow, um, and some of these ideas. Uh, uh, would take quite a long time to implement. You know, introducing a land value tax isn't going to be able to happen overnight. There need to be a transition period. Introducing or even piloting a universal basic income, the pilot process itself would take some time. Getting to the point of having a minimum income guarantee also doesn't happen overnight. It's it's about phasing in the resources and, and the support to ensure that that happens. But what we've provided, I feel, is a set of ideas that we feel would change the dynamic in terms of how the economy works and how we support uh, our people, our citizens, uh, and also how we ensure that people living in Scotland have a say and an input and are involved in the decision-making process. It's a fundamental change in terms of the social contract that currently exists. Well, it's interesting you're talking about universal basic income and the minimum income guarantee there. You know, tell, tell us what those those are. Tell us about those things. And, uh, and, and in your view, which is the, the best approach? <laughs> so... A universal basic income has been very popular uh, as an idea. It's become more popular during the pandemic. I think uh, that would have been the best way. An emergency UBI at the start of the pandemic would have been the best way to ensure that we uh, got the support to people um, quickly and in a way that was indiscriminate, that made sure that everybody got support, whereas the 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 support packages that came forward from the UK government, you know, left three million people behind, left so we, people with absolutely nothing. And when we hear all these stories of people saying, you know, I didn't get support, didn't get support quickly enough and so forth. If, if this had been adopted, as was requested right at the beginning, everybody would have got a level of support which would have taken them through the pandemic, yeah? 
Yes, I, that, that, I think that is um, it was a missed opportunity right at the start of the pandemic uh, to see that to see that happen. And, um, you know, I think we're going to be counting the cost of that going forward because we've lost businesses. We've lost the, uh, people from key sectors um, who have had to take on work elsewhere. It, to try to make ends meet it has been a really really difficult time for people and also we're going to be picking up the pieces in terms of um, people's mental health and uh, as well as their physical health um, so UBI provides uh, unconditional payment um, regular payment uh, to every citizen there are different models so some um, include payments to children um, some um, have uh, the complete removal of, of social security, some have elements of social security remain, pensions, housing payments, for instance. So there are various different models um, and the ones that really have the greatest impact, I feel, or could have the greatest impact in terms of uh, reducing or eradicating poverty are obviously very expensive, uh, would require a fundamental, a complete structural overhaul, not just with the social security system, but also the tax system uh, to ensure that that could be um, paid for and be sustainable. It's something that would take some time uh, to bed in, but could have the unleash creative talents in Scotland, it could provide the security to allow people to um, reduce their working week, uh, to uh, put their services uh, to better use, to recognise people's voluntary work and also unpaid care work, for instance. You know, as a society, uh, we, we, we definitely do not properly recognise uh, those areas, but it's a huge change. It's something that would require a, a yeah. fundamental shift and a political buy-in um, well, for it to be for it said, to take place. As you've just been saying, big benefits to get from it, but big challenges as well. But but this isn't something that's pie in the sky, is it? I mean, this this has been trialled. There are examples of where this has been tested. How do you feel that's working? Yeah, there, there are there are international examples where. Um, Countries, um, city-states have looked at this uh, and have, have, have tried it out. Have, there have been examples of where you know show uh, the benefit that, that that it can bring. I think it would be important for us to pilot it ourselves to see how that would work, and that in itself has become an argument for independence because the DWP and the Treasury have flat out refused even to allow the support for us to be able to, for the Scottish government to um, to trial uh, to pilot a UBI. Um, so, so just to, just to be clear, we've we've been stopped from doing running the tests here because of Westminster saying no. Yes, we don't want you to yeah, do. Yeah, it, it shows that for us even to investigate, we would need the powers of independence to be able to do that. Okay, so I just want to go on to discuss some of the other benefits of the Social Justice Commission report. And there's a determined move to include well-being and wellness at the heart of a new social security system. How can we learn from the mistakes of the DWP in making that happen? Well, I think listening to the people who have experience of dealing with the DWP is, is the most important starting point. Having that co-production in building the new social security system in Scotland has been fundamental in learning the lessons of what went before and having a human rights uh, based approach, based on dignity and respect of, of people uh, who require the support of the social security system is the only way that it can work. And that is a fundamental thread that runs through the Social Justice Commission report. It's about 
greater agency of citizens in, in uh, the, the way that the state operates. And it's about building policy with people who most need, most use uh, and have great experience of uh, the services that need to be provided, supporting the, the, the policy development, ensuring that that way we ensure we get the services right and learn from the mistakes of the past. The, the Social Justice Report also talks about community ownership. Uh, what value can that add to Scotland and, and why do we have to be independent in order to get to those those benefits? So in terms of um, the, the need for greater land reform, I think that's been well stated and there have been great steps under devolution to ensure there are better uh, community ownership models and we've we've seen the support that the Scottish Government has provided there and I've, I've got example you know, obviously some of the island communities are most high profile examples of where we've seen community buyouts but individual you know communities even in the central belt of Scotland you know buying back um, underused community facilities, uh, local um, church halls or um, or community halls uh, in my area uh, make a, a real difference. And that community engagement and community empowerment is so important for some of the ideas that we have in the report, which is about, again, you know, far better uh, citizen involvement in, in your community and in the decision-making process, devolving uh, power and responsibility and decision making to local communities uh, where possible, and a lot of this is is is, is a jigsaw and is about um, where the powers of independence make a real difference. Because you can do wee bits individually, but until you get the whole picture and the whole uh, map of um, the political uh, decision making across departments uh, that come with independence, that's where you get the real benefit. That um, And you can see far better cross-government working, far better inter-government working uh, as you go down through local decision making. That's where the real difference comes. Well, as um, MPs and indeed MSPs uh, now, we, our mailboxes are often filled uh, with different constituent inquiries. What, one of the biggest ones um, I find, and I wonder if it's the same for you, is people talking about housing needs uh, and mm -hmm. housing shortages. The, the, the Social Justice Commission report looks at that and uh, you know, what effect could bringing these measures in have on, on that particular issue for people? So one of the areas we talk about in the, the Commission report is about moving, and this is something, again, that you need, you know, buy-in from people and, and something that needs to change over time through a variety of different policies that takes a holistic approach to this. Uh, but moving to a more continental view of your house being your home rather than your house being a, an asset, because the, the housing bubble has, you know, the, the, has meant that, you know, um, the cost of housing has far outstripped the uh, the rise in wages, and so it's made housing far less affordable for people. So we need. There are different ways and different approaches that that could get to a point where housing is far more achievable and far better, far better quality. And we talk about some of the different approaches that could lead to that point. 
But fundamental to me um, is the need to continue the investment in social housing, building social housing for social rent, because that's when you drive up standards. If you have you know, proper housing standards in the social sector, um, also drives down rent levels because it, it, obviously you've got greater subsidy. It makes it far more difficult for uh, private landlords to jack up um, the rents and, and have inflated rents. Uh, and also if you, if you have far greater competition with the social sector, in terms of standards, um, it, it should hopefully bring up the standards in the, in the, the rented, private rented sector. Um, so for me, you know, you look at the poverty levels across the UK, Scotland has a, a lower poverty rate, particularly compared to England and Wales, and that's because of our investment in social housing and council housing. In some years of devolution, we have, Scotland has built more uh, homes for social rent and council housing than England in total, not just per head of population, but in total. And it's, you know, it's because of um, the reduced housing costs that come with that in Scotland, that poverty rates are lower. Uh, and so we need to continue that drive to build more social housing, which is why obviously I'm pleased with the manifesto commitment we've got to, uh, for 70% of the 100,000 homes that we've committed to uh, over the next 10 years are going to come from the social rented sector. It's a, it's a huge, hugely needed um, area. As you say, uh, my mailbag um, as an MP and still as an MSP is about housing issues and, and that's worth the investment that we've had, you know. Imagine if we had maintained the policies that we're seeing coming from England just now, you know, maintaining right to buy. So seeing our social housing, uh, you know, taken away, never mind invested. And imagine if we hadn't taken the investment decisions around increasing social housing uh, in Scotland that we have done over the last 14 years. Uh, we would have seen um, a lack of social housing, the, a huge social housing demand that we see in England, and would have seen higher poverty levels in Scotland. So I'm really glad that we've taken the decisions that we have. We've got more to do, uh, which is what comes in the report. Um, and I'm really glad, obviously, that uh, the SNP has committed in its manifesto uh, to 70% of the 100,000 homes committed uh, over the next 10 years will be for social rent. That is going to be fundamental in terms of access to housing, access to good housing and ensuring that we uh, help to drive down poverty rates in Scotland. Getting rid of the Tory policy of the right to buy has really made a dramatic difference to the availability of housing stock, as you've just pointed out. But there's another type of ownership that's really important. The Social Justice Report talks about community ownership. What value can that add to Scotland? And why is independence needed to really make this transformational? Well, I mean, there are very famous examples of um, community ownership and community buyouts uh, in some of the island and rural communities um, not too far away from you um, that have made a, a real difference to those communities. Um, and there are examples in my local community as well where uh, community facilities, community halls uh, that are run down or disused or, or falling into disrepair have been bought by community groups uh, and uh, you know, uh, brought back into useful use uh, for the local community. Uh, but for us to really take advantage of that, to uh, bring forward the land reform that we need uh, to be able to really instigate an investment process uh, to make a huge difference to communities, to have that buy-in, uh, to uh, get people involved in the local communities, to have the, the powers across government uh, and have government working together. It really needs the powers of independence to get not just the policies instituted, but also to see 
um, the revenue benefits that can help to um, uh, to help to pay for some of these uh, policies as well. So for us to do it on the scale that would be that, that we talk about in the report, uh, need the powers of independence, and they can't come soon enough. Yeah, and that would also have an effect on social mobility and addressing the pressure on social housing. But in addition to many more houses, in order to have healthy communities, we also need people to come to Scotland, especially in rural areas, for communities to thrive and survive. And we've seen since Brexit, especially with EU nationals, the drain on our health service, on social care and much more. And, and like many others, I'm often contacted by businesses in hospitality and tourism who are panicking just now about the lack of people they can find to work in their businesses. How would that tailored immigration policy that's proposed in the report work, especially in rural Scotland? So I know that you talked to uh, Stuart McDonald uh, in one of your previous podcasts, and he uh, submitted a fantastic paper to us on immigration policy that really informed our uh, approach there. And he's been a fantastic advocate and uh, done great work at Westminster exposing the problems that there are there. And I suppose the first thing that we would do uh, would be to ensure that we end the hostile environment that the UK government is currently instituting. You know, it, it would be the reverse that we need. We need to be open and welcoming to people who want to make Scotland their home. And it's about the way we treat people when they're here too. You know, we've, we've seen the protests on Kenmuir Street in Glasgow about the way that uh, asylum seekers have been treated um, in, in Scotland and the way that we recognise them. You know, I think those people that have chosen to make Scotland their home, we want to be supporting and encouraging them to continue to be able to contribute to our society. And that, you know, we've seen, um, uh, as you say, during Brexit in the sectors that you've talked about, there has been a, a major problem, a major recruitment issue uh, for key sectors uh, where migrant labour has made a massive impact and, and will continue to do so. You know, so you're talking about, like you say, the food production sector, uh, hospitality, uh, the, our public services, health and social care, local government making, a, you know, they make a fantastic contribution and we need to continue uh, to ensure uh, that people are welcomed here and they're then also supported here, which is, as I say, the polar opposite of the current system, which is letting Scotland down, letting down our employers and our communities and our public services. Well, you, you, you've been talking about those issues that uh, are really important to us just now. The Social Justice Committee report talks in its main themes, as we said at the beginning of our chat, about democratic renewal, about changing the way we make decisions, about values rooted in human rights and equality, about prioritising well-being through transformative policies that put the well-being of people uh, first. How quickly can we get to that kind of future where we can get these kinds of things put in place through the current constitutional arrangement with the UK or do we really need independence in order to make this happen? In so many of these areas that we've talked about, um, we are held back um, through devolution. The, de the devolved process doesn't allow us to go to the lengths that we, we need to or want to in order to create the well-being society, the good society that we, that we want to create. So we need independence. So, um, that is an absolute must in terms of uh, changing the way society works, in terms of making the economy work for us rather than the, the people working for the economy um, and then thereafter in the report we you know we, uh, we we admit that this is not a fully costed manifesto it's a set of ideas a blueprint for how we uh, create uh, better decision making and it's a set of ideas that an independent 
Scottish Government would be able to choose to implement when the resources and time and political buy-in allowed for that to happen. So um, in some of these areas, likes of land reform, UBI, minimum income guarantee, whichever one is chosen, it would require political consensus because it would have to be uh, have been phased in over time to allow that to happen, a bit like the NHS. Um, and so what we've discussed is, uh, you know, what we want an independent Scotland to look like three or four parliamentary terms in, 15 or 20 years in. Um, and so that's why the dem democratic renewal, the consensus building is going to be so important as we uh, build our new independent Scotland to have that well-being economy at its heart. Uh, we would need uh, to work hard at the, in the early years to make sure that we uh, get agreement on what our guiding principles and uh, vision is going to be for that country. And, and you, you just can't imagine Westminster suddenly having a change of heart and in introducing these types of uh, policies that, that would allow us to make those changes through the, the current setup then? The wry smile on your face, Drew, give, betrays the knowledge that you have that this can possibly happen, unfortunately, and uh, from a Westminster government of any hue, you know, um, because um, there just isn't that vision for uh, what a society, our, the society that we want to uh, instigate, uh, there just isn't that at, at Westminster. There's a very different uh, idea about what society should look like and how it should work. Uh, and, uh, you know, it can only happen for us through independence. Scotland and Westminster making very different choices. Neil Gray, I'll leave it there with you. Thanks very much indeed for spending time with me today. Thank you. Well, there we have it. These changes are critical to a healthy society that involves people and communities in setting their future. The UK choice through Westminster is to pursue an austerity agenda that has undoubtedly harmed people across society. Those who fell through the system both before and during the pandemic didn't have to. Westminster doesn't listen or learn when told of the needs of the people in Scotland. It's a failure of the UK social security system that we now have a growing network of food banks across the nations of the UK. Poverty is a political choice, and the UK has decided that it wants to live with it. Scotland is increasingly demonstrating that it does not. On social security, the Scottish Government's very different approach is to treat people with fairness and dignity, using the very limited powers they do have. And the Social Justice Commission shows just how we could take that further, starting the debate on our future on how we can make the decisions that will matter. It's critical, as we emerge from the pandemic and plan and pursue our recovery, to take a different path with those who most need, most use and have greatest experience of those services directly involved in building it. We are making a difference through devolved powers but could do so much more. Building more affordable homes for rent in Scotland and elsewhere in the UK and now starting on a programme to build many, many more. We're ambitious about community ownership but need the powers to progress that ambition. The UK's hostile environment, immigration policy is harmful to Scotland and it needs to end for all our sakes. In conclusion, there's no chance of Westminster taking the steps that we would need to move to a progressive, well-being economy. It could only happen through independence. Scotland and Westminster making very different choices. My thanks once again to Neil Gray, MSP. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. Thanks for listening, and don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you join me next time on Scotland's Choice. Mm -hmm.